All right, so Jay, how are we going to do this? You're going to go in as a Mercy, and I'm going to go in as Bastion, or you want me to play as as Reaper and you be Lucio? Like, what? What's the plan? Yeah, Lucio. Let's go, Lucio, Lucio. Reaper. Is it Lucio or Lucio? Am I pronouncing it wrong? Oh, gosh, I suck. Oh, oh we're recording. Um, so this is episode 165. You're listening to Coding Blocks. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, because I know that Jay Z, you want to do the new opening from now on. Let's, am I ever doing well, I want to cut the old opening too, though. Oh, so <laughs> that's both. It's a oh, man, I'm messing up. Uh, okay. Well, we're we're on Spotify and Stitcher and iTunes, wherever you like to find your podcast apps. Uh, in case if you aren't already subscribed, if you aren't already subscribed, smash that subscribe button. Um, we would greatly appreciate it. And uh, yeah, have a good day. Uh, what do you call? Uh, I got a joke that I heard. Oh right snap! Nice yeah. surprise. Uh, what do you call a werewolf streamer? A werewolf streamer. How something? It's a like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> like and very yeah. nice. <laughs> Pretty sure I kind of goofed that up a little bit, but. I still like it. Okay. I like it. I like it too. Yeah. Well, you can find, uh, we should have a page for jokes. That would be amazing. if we had all the jokes. Uh, and if we did have that page, it would be on codingbox.net where we have show notes, examples, discussion, and other things. And you can fit, send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. You can follow us on the Twitters at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net. And you can find all our crazy social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Lucio. And I'm Reaper. If we're going with our, our Overwatch character names, is that what we're doing? Yep. I think Alan messed up then. Yeah, I don't I don't Overwatch. Oh, gosh. Here <laughs> yeah, we go. We need to work on that. We can't have nice things. We can't even agree on anything. Call of Duty, man. That's where it's at. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications. All right, so uh, yeah, a little bit of show introduction here. I guess we're going to be talking about microservices and um, if it's a real thing or not. Uh, the jury's still out; we're not convinced yet, and we're gonna we're gonna settle it once and for all for the entire internet to find out. But uh, in the meantime, you know, we like to start the episode off by saying thank you to everybody who left us a review. And I I gotta say, internet. I'm surprised because like I really did you a solid favor last one by cutting Alan and Joe short and to th- as a way of thanking me, there wasn't a review. So now I feel totally awkward because I thought I was helping. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'll let uh, one of them do the, do, you know, do the bag later, but we yeah, might, so it might just be us here. It, it's probably that's, that is <laughs> probably likely off. it for real. But I didn't want to like be negative and call it out like that. But <laughs> now that it's out there, I guess we have to talk about it because it's now the elephant in the room. Thank you. But it's, it's back. It's back to us. So, you know, if you can this time. No. <laughs> I think everybody's on that Rick Rock thing or whatever it is. Uh, no. All right, so I'll see this how we have no reviews to cover. Please, if you if you do halfway want to do it, though, that'd be nice. Um, also, I have published a couple of videos up on YouTube. They are like quick tips, and I say quick because eh, five five to ten minute range. 
Um, the first two are basically visual studio code trips tips to help you be more productive and do some cool things. One was Jay Z's tip for the partial disks. Another one was the HTTP, uh, extension and rest, rest things. So, um, might be something that saves you a lot of time. So go check that out on uh, youtube.com slash coding blocks. And, uh, yeah. And, and Jay Z, you got, you got something up there too. Yeah, I did a video. I'm loving me some scaffold. Got a talk coming up October 9th at Atlanta Code Camp uh, that I've pitched for. I'll show you what scaffold is, and I kind of use it like a, for a local development in Kubernetes, kind of like a, a Docker Compose replacement. Love it. And uh, so I did a little trial run of kind of like a demo kind of thing that I'm, I'm kind of wanted to pilot out. So I went ahead and recorded it. It's like 15 minutes long that I really try to kind of hammer uh, home and uh, focus on like the, the main value of scaffold. And so I try to make it short, try to keep it light, still end up being 15 minutes. And, uh, I also use this like weird choral angelic background music. <laughs> so all, all the comments and feedback I've gotten so far have been about that. So yeah. if you're into that sort of thing, this is a great place to go to <laughs> watch that video. If you like that. <laughs> That, that's actually my favorite genre of music. I didn't even realize that you had right. it there. So angelic, uh, uh, modern music. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Especially hey, so, like it when there's like a mosh pit for it. You really and wings awesome. just sprout. You yeah. just fly over the crowd. Yeah. Gives you an opportunity. Right. It's a good outlet for aggression and whatnot. So, uh, you know, it's healthy. I like hey, it. So, so a heads up on this Atlantic code camp thing, like it, keep in mind, he said he submitted his talk. Like, I don't think his has been, accepted yet i don't I, I submitted two as well one on uh why would you use docker and another one on flink flink data streaming or real-time data analytics type stuff i think both of mine are still sitting there and pending as well so hopefully we'll be talking at atlantic code camp so this is awkward because i was recently i recently wrote in a letter saying like hey these talks i'm not interested in the most and those like, three that would be up. that would <laughs> Was I not supposed to send that? Well, I'm a jerk. <laughs> yeah, that stinks. So yeah, we, we might we might get approved for them. Um, if we are, you know, we will be. Oh, I need to finish that. We will be showing up all three together there to uh, have a booth and do all that kind of stuff. So yeah, uh, you know, assuming that everything still works out, you know, that's the current plan. <laughs> so Pandemic I, think, yeah, aside, I think that every like public gathering has to be like, you know, asterisk, like there is the possibility that, you know, the thing gets canceled out from underneath us. Um, cause they That's did so have, possible. they did have some kind of a, a verbiage about that from what I recall, um, for the Atlanta code camp. So yeah. Jeez. Well, we hope, yeah, we hope. hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, you know, Joe started us out with a joke and I I just can't let that sit. So um, you know, I have the I have the the dad joke API just right here at my fingertips available to me, so I got to like follow that up. So, um, you know, there was a, a beekeeper that was indicted after he confessed to years of stealing at work. Do you know what they charged him with? Buzz something. They charged him with embezzlement <laughs> there you go that and other quality dad jokes can be found with the dad joke api so like don't don't you know like i know that you're gonna be beating me down with emails and you know messages on twitter or slack like hey where'd you get that great joke and that's where i got it speaking of uh i realized where i got my joke from earlier like uh, like and subscribe yeah it was Gaprogman.net Core Show. 
Awesome. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Yep. That was awesome. He's going to get another shout out in the show too. Um, hey, yeah. Word. So, so let's get into the meat here of this episode. It, we're talking about microservices and kind of what did this was it triggered us in the last episode when we talked about the jet brain survey, when like over 80% of people are working with microservices. 35, so, 35. Huh? 35%. Nah, I could have sworn it was way higher. Well, while, while Joe is verifying that number, I, I want to like kind of reinforce when Alan says that it triggered him. Like, have you, do you remember something about Mary and the, like the guy, the way he would twitch about the seven minute abs? Like, <laughs> that was literally like as we were recording the previous episode and we got to that, to that, uh, metric. Alan really like it was like Joe and I are in the back. Like, have you taken your medication? You okay? Do you need <laughs> you a break? Yeah. You need some water? Like what's going on? So uh, I looked it up. Uh, so the deal is 35% of all respondents uh, develop microservices. However, later it goes on and says, what approach do you use in your system design? And 88% said microservices. Yeah. That's crazy talk. Yeah, and especially because rest is eighty three percent, right? So eighty eight percent, man, like triggered it, absolutely seven minute abs, twitching, all that. If I recall though, too, like we actually joked about it, like because it was like, what approach do you take? And and I think I joked about it at the time of something like, okay, well, like here's all the possible approaches we could take. Like, uh, microservices is one of them. Yeah, that sounds too hard. Okay, we well we looked at it. It was an approach we looked at. Okay, let's move yeah. on. Right. So, so that's kind of where it's like, I was like, do I understand what microservices are? Maybe it's time to kind of reevaluate that. And then got me thinking, it's like, well, does anyone know what microservices are? Like, do we even have, like, have, have we found agreement? Is this an ubiquitous term or is it just completely vague? I, I walked yeah. away from that survey with the conclusion that if 88% are looking at it, then I'm like, I guess I'm not, I don't understand then. <laughs> right. And uh, I don't know because I, I wouldn't have, guessed that high a number no so so here's the deal right like joe went out and found this site that's actually really good microservices.io uh, I, I highly recommend it. it'll be in our resources it'll be in the show notes so definitely if you're on your podcast player or whatever you can swipe over to the notes and look at it and go to the link right um oh so so just want to take a quick on that so one thing i found with a, a bunch of sites this is like the ones that we'll have like down in the references Including this one, the, all the great sites, uh, even for, for or pro, you know, pro or con, uh, for microservices, all of them are sponsored by somebody that's got a vested interest in it. So oh, microservices.io, it's, uh, Kong. Uh, and I looked up Kong. I've never heard Kong. It's the service connectivity for modern, modern architectures company. And, uh, I mean, they, they have a microservices product. So, you know, yeah, they, they like everything. Yeah. yeah. So, you, you know, you know, like, Everything that you know on here is coming from a company trying to sell that sort of thing. And like we'll see that time and time again. Like every link we have, like there's some marketing force behind this. Everything's an acronym. So like I just expected it to be like Kubernetes on Angular. <laughs> you know, like on NG, you know. So yeah. turns out like that's yeah, not the thing. That is they missed, but they missed such an opportunity though. But you know what? I will say this about this particular site. Yes, they do have this thing that will they'll they'll you know, have some sort of service where they'll walk you through how, how to do certain things and evaluate. But they seem to be really honest about the pros and the cons of microservices, right? And yeah. and that's really kind of what we want to get into here is because 
you first have to kind of understand what they are and it all sounds absolutely amazing. And then you have to understand if they're for you. Right. And th- and that's where, that's where the rubber meets the road. And this is where I think a lot of people are saying that they look at, you know, 88% of people are saying that they look at it. They probably look at it and walk the other way, or they, they don't realize that they're not doing microservices. Um, so what is a microservice? From this microservices.io site, which I actually thought they did a pretty good job of breaking this down, it says it's a collection of services that are a highly maintainable and testable. Okay, cool. They're loosely coupled, loosely coupled. Otherwise, you're just creating a distributed monolith, which I loved that they stated that because I think that's what a lot of people actually end up doing and don't realize it. Um, it's independently deployable. That's a really big key portion that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I mean, that goes hand in hand with the loosely coupled. Right. Because it, which to go back to illustrate your previous point about the distributed monolith is that if your thing, if you think you have a a microservice, but yet your pieces aren't independently deployable, then you don't. Right. Totally. Yeah. If you have to make coordinated changes, they're not microservices. Exactly. And we're going to talk about some of the specifics on how that ends up happening and you don't even realize it, right? Um, they also put that it's typically organized around business capabilities, right? So it says that uh, – I think somebody else put this note in here. Somebody want to talk to it? Yeah, I just want to say that uh, a lot of the, the stuff that you read about microservices also deals with actual team architecture. So like the what people are assigned to, to what sort of uh, pieces here because – um, you ever heard that old ad? I forget what the name of the rule is, but basically that uh, your code architecture ends up uh, forming around the same kind of company architecture. Mm. Uh, so basically you're like your org chart. So this kind of thing applies here. So like a lot of uh, the architect, the microservices architectures that you'll see and you'll read about, the architecture will uh, mirror the organization of the company. So like the services will be kind of grouped around the teams that actually work on them. So what he's saying there is like if you have a customer service department, if you have an, a, a billing department, if you have a shipping department, you know, that kind of stuff, you'll probably have microservices that, that are very much tailored to each one of those groups. Well, I think it's even smaller than that there, right? Because I think it was actually the um, – I think it was like one of the clean architecture books that that talked about it. It was either that or the data-driven – or design – oh, my God. I can't remember the DDD book uh, – it was data, it data was intensive. Domain driven design. Domain yeah. driven. <laughs> you said yeah. data. And it just shot it. I yeah. was yeah. gone. <laughs> um, I think it was like one of those, t- one of those books or something that, that talked about the, um, uh, it being organized around the team. And it could be like even smaller, like, you know, your team does the advertisements, you know, that might pop up in your app. Right. And so like, that's your quote service, you know, that you bring in yep. and, and another one might be responsible for like, uh, search and discovery uh, within your application. And so that's your, you know, kind of service. Uh, but it also happens to be like, Hey, you are the advertising uh, arm of the development team. So, Oh, it makes sense that you're the, you're also creating that service and you're, you're, you're responsible for, you know, your team is responsible for like elastic search and technologies like that. And Oh, Hey, look, happens to work out that, you know, that's the type of thing that you're, you're delivering. Yeah, we yep. said that maintaining that independent deployability was really important. And that's also kind of a, a people problem. So if you have a bunch of people on one team and a bunch of services that they all own, then they're going to tend to make coordinated changes because they're all kind of working on the same stuff. 
But if you want to be able to deploy faster and smaller, then you kind of need these teams to be able to operate independently and to make changes independently and kind of publish those contracts independently. And so uh, a lot of the organization around the code is also organization to uh, support that deployment strategy. Yeah. And that's their next point also is typically a microservice is owned by a small team. Um, I think they, they even brought up the thing that we've talked about in the past with two pizza teams, right? Like you're not going to have more than, more than, you know, X number of people, basically no more than it would take two pizzas to feed the team. Um, so, uh, looks like, uh, looks like Wait, somebody also added in the, some more. The stuff. pizza thing though is like for like, that I thought was that was agile. about meetings though, right? Like that don't schedule, agile. don't organize yeah. a meeting that you can't like have two, two pizzas feed the, you know, all the attendees. Teams, yeah. Well, they talked about that also on this microservices.io saying uh, that you don't want a development team bigger than that either um, for supporting microservices. And, and I think it goes back to what Jay-Z was saying, which is if your teams get too big, then you end up, you end up doing things that tightly couple things when you don't really mean to. I see. And uh, a couple of things I would add here. So I talked to, to Jim Hummelsign about uh, this episode uh, on the Coding Box Virtual Happy Hour on Saturdays. Uh, I just happened to mention that we were going to talk about microservices uh, next, and he recommended me some materials, which we'll get to later. Uh, but also he had two uh, two really good points that he made. He talked about uh, services being stateless. And the stateless, uh, part of that is the scalability, which is you know also uh, you know important and you know good for lots of reasons. But it's also about uh, not... Um, not coupling tightly things together. So like if your thing has state, it's because it knows something about a process that stretches on beyond itself. So that's not a microservice at the point, you know, it's back to distributed monolith. So by keeping things stateless, you just kind of help things re- remain atomic. That also means that they're independently scalable, which is a major benefit of having microservices. And one reason that you might want to do this. Uh, but like, but, hmm, I, Okay, if I may, because when we talk about that, like anytime we talk about like scaling anything, right, it's never the stateless bits that are the problem, right? Right. Like if you have a web app that has no state, like you know, it's it's easy to be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to have a thousand of these, or I'm going to only have one of these things. Like that's the easy part. It's dealing with the state, like you know, properly sizing out like a Postgres cluster or a a Kafka cluster, like those are the things that are always problematic. But I think what, you know, if we were to also go back to the things that, uh, um, uncle Bob and, uh, again, the, uh, domain driven design, uh, shoot Evans, Evans, Eric Evans, I think it was his name. Um, you know, then there, you know, you would front that, that data layer was something like nothing would have like direct access to that, that data source. And, Ooh, and the thing that's we'll, fronting that would be stateless, right? Ooh, we'll get into some oh, of that. Oh, here we go. Yeah. I, we'll get I into triggered Alan. He's already twitching. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 there was a lot of interesting things on this microservices, microservices.io site, but okay, they, so they, we'll they do talk about some of the state stuff. Yes. Yeah. You had a couple um, more here, Jay-Z. Yeah, so um, Jim also turned me on to Sam Newman, so I ended up uh, picking up a book from Sam Newman, uh, who uh, got a, like two really popular books on microservices. And one thing I noticed here uh, in the definitions we got on microservices.o is none of them mentioned the size. Like the, we didn't talk about 
a seven team, a small team. We didn't talk about the size of the service, so I just thought it was kind of funny. And he had a quote here that microservices are small autonomous services that work together. And so that was his definition. And even that, like, you know, right off the gate, we said that uh, what is a microservice? It's a collection of, because it doesn't make sense to have one microservice, right? Because it, it really has nothing to do with size so much as it has to do with responsibility and working as part of a greater whole. You can't kind of by definition have one microservice. I don't like your next line because I don't even, I can't even figure out what it means. Yeah. So this is something else I picked up from Sam Newman. Uh, thanks to Jim, because I was reading the, the first chapter here. Uh, he talked about, um, semantic diffusion, which is basically, uh, a way of saying, like, if a term gets out in the wild and kind of gets popular and it doesn't have a, a good, strong definition, then that definition will kind of grow and evolve and people will hear something like microservice and apply it to something that maybe they're already doing or something else is doing or the definition grows until it's just so big. And so even though we came and we just listed like seven things and said, this is what a microservice is. The term is kind of made up, right? Like no one defined this term in a paper written in 1987. Like a lot of like vocabulary and, and technical stuff is, this is a term that kind of evolved. And because of that, there's a lot of disagreement over these things. And so, what we're trying to do is like retroactively find a definition and fit it to what people have kind of defined as the best practices. And so um, you might find people that say we're doing microservices and then you find out what they really mean is small services that are distributed monolith. And so by having these definitions here and this kind of like upfront definition just gives us a framework to talk about uh, microservices. So like saying the three of us are decide, like agreeing that this is the definition that we're going to go with and we're going to talk about things because this is where the industry is kind of settled on this definition after the fact, <laughs> after we're, we're retroactively applying and trying to kind of find patterns here. And so it's just kind of tough. And I found this vocabulary word that he, he mentioned um, kind of referring to that. Semantic diffusion being that vocabulary word. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, just to go just take one step back, I think I might've referred to it as like data driven design or something like that, but I was referring to domain driven design. Right. You said that too. Okay. Did I say it? Okay. You did. Yeah. It dawned on me. (laughs) I was like, I don't think I said the right thing. And that's going to, that's why as soon as you said data, I was like, data intensive apps, best book ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the next part of the microservices that they say is, is a key feature of this type of implementation is it enables frequent and reliable delivery of complex applications. Right. And that's because of the loose coupling and the independent deployment and all that. And this one I found really interesting. And I like this one a whole lot is it allows you to evolve your tech stack. And the reason that they stated behind the scenes for this is because you're deploying smaller services, Typically, these services are going to communicate on a standard protocol like REST, right? Like you might use the REST protocol when you're doing this. And so nobody cares about whether it was written in Java or C Sharp or Node or whatever, right? As long as these things can be called and a contract is met, you know, you you call the customer service and the customer service returns you a customer object in JSON or XML or whatever you want. Doesn't matter what it's written in. So you can actually evolve your tech stack more effectively over time because they're in smaller chunks that you can do. So that was really interesting. And I augmented your notes here again. Remember the strangler pattern, which we've talked about a few times, which is a terrible name for pattern. In fact, uh, I just, <laughs> when I Googled it, the first thing, uh, it sounds like 
uh, some people are pushing to like kind of emphasize it's the strangler fig pattern because we were talking about a strangler vine that would kind of take over a tree. And the, the idea there is that we talked about in, in non-microservices of code, we talked about like basically introducing interfaces and then you slowly like replace the code underneath until there's no code or, you know, the original code left because you've all kind of replaced it over time. And that's how this kind of this vine works, this uh, strangler vine that grows up around the tree. Eventually the tree dies, but the vine lives on. And so it's like become strong enough to kind of become its own tree. And so, uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of funny. So, you know, we say you, you can evolve your tech stack. Like what it means is like you start out with these 10 services. And if you want to go from uh, Java to C sharp or whatever, then that's fine. Uh, and you know, you can do that stuff and you can re- replace that stuff. And as long as you maintain that contract and no one even has to know. So it sounds like we should just microservice all the things all the time forever in life. Like, I'm sold. It does, right? And, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, from now on, it's going to be a microservice for everything. Right. We can now be a part of the 88 percenters. I I think, (laughs) I think that we're there now. Well, you remember like, so Python two to three, like how many companies are stuck? Imagine if they all had microservices, they could have just done one service at a time. Like, that's great. That's great. We should all do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this episode's over. Um, (laughs) yeah. And there's never a negative side to this either. Like this sounds amazing. Like I haven't heard a single con to it. Like, uh, you know, I'm hearing nothing but positives. And so, yeah, we'll get, we'll get there for sure. Yeah. So everybody just go ahead and start spinning up your microservices, right? Yeah. Don't be negative. It's just natural. Come on, man. We're going to have to kick you off the podcast. What's that about? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So dark quick, right? Yes. So the the very next line that they have in there is microservices are not a silver bullet, right? Like Wait, there are actually a lot of downsides. Um, what? But before we get into those, that would be no fun if we told you what they are right now. So they Maybe actually even mostly downsides. <laughs> I mm, oh, I that's I know. I'm, I kid. I kid. I don't know that Mostly. you do. <laughs> it's the same question. It's close, right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's it's actually a really good conversation when we get into there. What's the M and M quote? A lot of truth is said in jest. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what they did say is you, you need to be able to sort of talk about some of these patterns in in, in a language that makes sense so that you communicate with these. So this will be our you ubiquitous know. language. Right, <laughs> UML. Right, that is definitely a uh, a spreading thing from I don't know 1980. Um, that's the strangler pattern. That's right. It's taken over. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so one of the things that they say is they go into this. There's a collection of patterns to apply for these microservices. So. Um, one of the ones that they have here is they, they have these three patterns up here and they're called the, uh, wait, actually I'm doing this wrong. I'm saying it wrong. Disregard everything I just said there. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about one microservice implementation here just to make it easy to sort of concept conceptualize this stuff. Right. And I have a link in the show notes to this specific page so that if you kind of want to see how they drew the arrows and all that stuff, it'll, it'll help you when you're going through this stuff. But let's keep it easy. You have an inventory service, an account service, and a shipping service. Now this, based off the back end thing that you were saying earlier, Outlaw, this is where things get really interesting when they started. And, and it's not just this site, by the way. Um, I, I accidentally stumbled upon Capital One, uh, fairly large uh, financial you know, institution here in the U.S., uh, they have, 
Right. There you go. They have an engineering blog that's actually really good. Kind of like, you know, we've seen Netflix and those guys. Capital One has a really good one. And they had a lot of these same purposes or points that they pointed out. So each service talks to a separate database or, or storage, whatever it is, right? Like it doesn't have to be a database. It could be whatever kind of storage that it has, Cassandra, relational Mongo, who cares? So none of them share the same database, right? Um, fronting these microservices are typically a couple of APIs. Um, so in this, in this imaginary, imaginary setup that we have, you'll have this mobile gateway for your phones or whatever to talk to. And then you'll have an API that serves a website, right? And then, but that's kind of what I was getting at before though, with that example was that like you wouldn't, your, your microservice wouldn't allow the database itself or whatever the storage layer is to be exposed to like external connections. Like you would have something fronting that and that your thing, service is fronting it. Yeah. That thing would be stateless. Right. And how you scale the state behind the scenes, it would be like, nobody else would care. And if you decide, Hey, you know what? We no longer want to use Postgres. We want to use Oracle. Like the service that everybody else is connecting to go through it would still be the, you know, be fine where, that has come to issue like where I've seen it. Like there's things that like, how, how do you, you know, like, uh, gosh, I'm even struggling to put this into words because there's such a temptation to be like, well, I want to be able to like just send it an arbitrary query or, you know, and at that point it's like, wait a minute, you shouldn't even know how, to query it because you don't know what the the storage is. So the mere fact that you even know, like would already be a problem, right? Totally. Because then it's a total leakage of whatever, like this thing is supposed to abstract away whatever it is. And if I'm going to leak that abstraction away, then like what I failed. Yep. So, so basically what you were saying, and just so that everybody kind of understands is that microservice. So we said we have an inventory and account and a shipping service, three different ones. The, the inventory service, let's say that it is talking to Postgres, right? Just, just to make things concrete and easy. You can scale that microservice. You could create a hundred instances of it. Those can all talk to that same Postgres database, but that's it, right? And the only thing that should be in that database would be inventory related information. So, Kind of going back to what you were saying, in in a standard e-commerce application, you might have a customer's table, an inventory table, uh, an orders table, all that kind of stuff. They're saying no on that, right? The only thing that will exist in that one database is inventory information. And well, we could even go back to a concrete example that we've talked about from the past, like as it related to Amazon, right? Like the database that has the customers is not the database that has the orders. And you have to go through another service to get customer data from, and like, you know, off to that and you have a need for it, like, you know, and, and and it's purposely done like that so that you can't join two different data sets together easily, uh, you know, to, to get information out. So it had, it has like in that particular use case, like an added security benefit, on top of the, this ability to scale them independently and, you know, all the other microservices hoopla. Right. Well, I meant like pros. Sorry. 
Yep. So <laughs> what what they ended up saying here is when you place an order, a request is made to the mobile API. Let's say you're making a request from your phone, right? A request is made to the mobile API to place the order. The mobile API has to make individual calls to each one of the individual microservices to get and update the information for those various different pieces, right? So you make an order. Your mobile gateway is then going to call the inventory service to deduct the amount of inventory from that particular product. It's going to then call the account service and up, you know, update billing or whatever's happening there. And then it's also going to call to the shipping service and say, Hey, I need a label for this thing. So it's sort of coordinating that stuff for you in that regard. And that's how the microservices, the microservices work. So you've got three different services and potentially three separate databases all behind the scenes there. And, and they point out that this is con- in contrast to the monolithic setup to where you have a single API that does all that stuff, right? So, you know, in, in your monolithic thing, you're going to have place order and then it's going to go run and do all that stuff. It's going to have all the logic there and it's probably going to be talking to a single database that places the order, updates the inventory and everything else. It's hard. It's a hard mindset to be able to convince people of too, because it's so easy <clears throat> to think about that that monolithic one, because you're like, well, if I want everything to be like acid compliant, for example, like I want everything in one nice transaction to where if I had to roll it back, then it's just the one transaction to roll back versus if it's, if everything's separated and then it's like, oh, well, what if like I get to step four and step four fails, but all the other ones succeeded? Like, you mean I got to implement that log- rollback logic in my application? Like that seems crazy. Why am I reinventing the wheel? There's already a database for this. And that's where like, it's it's really hard to like try to convince people at a smaller scale to do this sort of thing because of these I don't want to call them like impediments but you know it's a different kind of thought process mindset it's more complex it's definitely it's more to code and it's more complex right and and what you said is about it's hard to convince you know smaller scale type things to do it that's when you kind of got to take a step back and say, should we do it? Right. Do you need that extra complexity? Probably not. Right. Maybe you should be doing a monolith or maybe you should be doing an end tier setup and not even be considering microservices until you hit the scale that requires you to go down that path. I mean, there have been some extremely successful companies that were monolith until they didn't need to be. I mean, like, yeah. uh, I'm trying to remember some of the ones that we've talked about, like the big ones, but I think like Facebook, Facebook. was yeah. one that was just like compiled down to a single, uh, you know, uh, I think it was down to a single C thing, PHP C thing. I, I forget exactly. Like it was PHP compiled into C or something like that. Right. And then, um, wasn't there another one like an Instagram or, or maybe it was the original Amazon back in the Twitter. Uh, I think, I think Amazon was another one back in the like nineties and early two thousands, right? Like before they, like that was their, uh, impetus to bring in AWS or to what became AWS, right? Was when they started breaking apart amazon.com. If I remember the story correctly. So, yeah. So, I mean, to your point is, you know, oftentimes monolith is good enough until it's not. And when it's not, you'll, you'll that, you know, by then you hopefully are successful enough that you can have the time and resources to start breaking it apart, but don't let it be 
you know, it's like the joke that we have with Alan over the years, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm going to start writing this new application. And the first thing I got to do is get the authentication feature to scale to a billion concurrent users. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's been like, like the running joke over the years for the show. Right. And, you know, don't until it's a problem. Yeah. Making the decision to go the microservice route from the beginning can really slow you down like majorly. And also it's funny because they say it's easier to deploy and it's in and all that. And if you do it right, it is. However, there's a lot of overhead and just understanding how it all works, how it all ties together, how you make the messaging work, um, all that, because here's another thing that I don't even know that they point out in the pros and cons is typically in a microservice architecture, none of the other services know about each other, right? So if you have an account microservice and, and a shipping and whatever else, they don't talk to each other directly. They typically talk through some sort of messaging bus or, or, or a queue, right? Um, Kafka or RabbitMQ or something, right? So most things happen in, in an event driven way to where, uh, new orders placed. Okay. A message hits a queue. Everything that cares about that now reacts to it, right? So your account service, your shipping service, your inventory service, they're all like, okay, well, I have something now. I need to go do some work. And then they're not talking to each other. They're sending messages to a queue somewhere that other things then respond to. So that's a lot of coordination. You know, there was there, I think in like the, within like the last few episodes, I'd made a comment too about like, you know, like there's all these patterns that we learn about and, and, you know, look like, like look at the catalog of episodes we've done over the years. Right. And some of the books that we've, we've studied uh, during that time. And there's a lot of like great patterns and things that you should do in it. But, you know, I'd said that like um, in, in one of the recent episodes, like all of these are like great things, but sometimes like they just kind of get in your way, right? And and to your comment a moment ago about with the microservices is like uh, it getting in your way. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Like sometimes it's better to not fixate on like all the like where should I like do I need a comma here or is is this do you know do I need to dot this i can or can you still tell that it's an i if I don't dot it? Like just get the thought out. And, and, you know, and sometimes like, you know, in anything that we're doing, like there are a lot of great practices and patterns and whatnot. And microservices is one of those at at a, at a larger scale than say, you know, some of the ways to organize your, the actual code, but all of them are, are great. But sometimes it's just like to that monolithic conversation, like just get the thing out there, like get the MVP out there, see, see what's what first, you know, don't start with the idea of like, well, of course my thing needs to scale to a concurrent, you know, a billion <laughs> users. Billion. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, like on that note, like, well, remember we talked about like NoSQL versus uh, relational databases. And we said that like with NoSQL, you really have to understand your domain because the shape you give to your objects is harder to change once it's out in the wild. You can't really con- kind of combine that stuff in different ways. So in a lot of ways, like, any sort of startup is going to be rough with microservices because like you don't really understand your domain yet and it's harder to change once you have to like 
split things up in services because you can imagine like you you say okay we've got an inventory service cart service a payment service whatever let's put this stuff out there and then you start realizing that there's rules that kind of blend across two and which one does it go to and like how do we have to do this and what you're finding out is basically that there's some shared behavior that maybe should be a whole other service or maybe those two services should really just be one but how can you know that up front until you really start kind of evolving the product like you're still building the product you're defining the product so how can you really split this stuff into multiple different components until you totally understand that domain? And that doesn't happen until it's a mature product. Mm-hmm. It does make me question, though, that like um, I had this thought while you were describing it, while Alan was describing it, where like picture what if you're in a situation where like uh, you know multiple teams do have access to, say, like a same database or whatever the storage tier might be that like maybe – Maybe, uh, you know, your team should protect themselves against that, those other teams and the changes by, even if there isn't already a service to front that storage layer, you create one that your team goes through. And then that way you only have the one single thing touching it that you're like, you know, you have a layer of protection against, right? It's kind of like the idea that, um, I think it was from the clean architecture book where it was talking about like, uh, you know, like putting an interface around, around those external kind of dependencies, you know, but in this case, it's not like just an interface. It's, it's a, you know, like a, a, a a service. So it's funny that you say that because that specifically was one of the things that was called out both on the capital one stuff. And even in, in this website is you should never share a database. And the reason is, is because, you accidentally start doing tight coupling. So for instance, if you update a table in a database, in a shared database, everybody knows that that table's updated, right? And so now it's it's almost harder to do these independent deployments because you now know the contract of that particular table shifted. And, and if you don't follow suit in something, right? Like if somebody let's not even say that you just added a, a column to a table. Let's say you deleted a column from a table and, and you broke that out into a bridge table or something, right? That's something that leaks through your implementation. And so anybody that's accessing that same database has to deal with that same thing. And and so now you can't really independently deploy things because your stuff's going to be tied to the other team stuff who are using that same database. And that's why they were like, you have your own data stores. And yeah. then that way, the only thing you honor is your contract. Doesn't matter if you delete something behind the scenes. As long as you're always honoring your contract on what returns from your API, you're good. See, I, w- I was actually thinking of uh, something even simpler than that. Like, don't don't change the schema. Leave the schema as is, but you go through a version upgrade. Mm, yeah. You know, and sometimes the ramifications that that might have, you know, like mess up every service that touches an older driver might not be able to know how to talk to that newer version of this, of that storage layer, you know, things like that. Yeah. Cause now all of a sudden they're not independently um, deployable. You're going to have to deploy them all. So, so my app that hasn't changed in like two years, you're saying like, Oh, Hey, uh, Michael, by the way, we're doing an upgrade on our storage layer and you need to update your driver. And I got to go through a version upgrade on my app for no other reason. And oh, by the way, maybe that th- that new driver version breaks other things in my application. That now, like my two year old application, you know, whatever it might be, like I got to go through you know a bunch of hassle 
uh, in headaches to deal with that. So yeah, I mean, shared databases were kind of gross, but I, that's why I was thinking like, you know, you could, you could, um, what's that, that, that expression about like, uh, be the, be the, um, the force of change that you want, you know, do you, or yeah, I've heard you, that I can't, before. I can't remember. I'm, I'm misquoting it, but, um, that's why I was thinking of the idea of like, okay, if there's not already a service involved, then you could, you know, create one for your team to go through. So at least you're protected. And then maybe that thing would grow enough popularity that others would start using it too. And it would eventually become the thing that abstracts away the actual storage layer to where, you know, uh, you know, maybe the data team that, that would own whatever that storage layer is would actually like take over the ownership of it. But, you know, if you want to, if you wanted to see that kind of change happen, then, you know, be the, the force that starts it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of the thing too, like about studying things like microservices, like you might know, like listening to this episode going in, you're on a small team, you're not going microservices, but you listen to the episode anyway. And maybe, or, you know, like for us, like we research this stuff anyway, like, Maybe there's some things you take away from it and you're like, you know, there's some things that I do like and maybe I can get some of that benefit by doing this, that or the other. And, uh, you know, I don't have to go full hog or, you know, might sit back and say, well, you know what? This might be what's wrong about these two services that we've been having trouble with. We're both sharing a data store and we're having these kinds of problems. So, you know, it's, it's always good stuff to, to learn about. Yeah, totally. Learning is good. So. So before we go into the break here, let's talk about the the pros of the microservice architecture. We described what it is, and, and in describing it, I think we hit on some of the pros, but let's call them out explicitly. So, uh, you know, we mentioned the size earlier. Each service is small, so it's actually easier to understand by a developer and easier to change. That's a really big pro. Um, it's easier and faster to test as they're smaller and less complex. Excellent. Uh, better deployability. You can deploy them independently of everything else, or you should be able to. Um, easier to organize development effort around effort around because you have smaller autonomous teams. Sounds great. Uh, because the code bases are smaller, the IDEs actually work better. And this is true. That may sound kind of silly, but we've all worked on really big projects where you know, the IDEs don't even like them, right? Um, we've definitely had issues like that in the past. We were talking in the last episode about um, JetBrains IDEs, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, WebStorm specifically was called out. And I remember, um, you know, getting in a discussion because like years ago, you know, WebStorm was like my go-to uh, daily driver for doing any of my JavaScript development. And I remember like it at a meetup, um, they used to do, uh, this particular, it was a JavaScript meetup and they would do these lightning rounds. And, um, I don't even remember how it came up in the meetup, but somehow like, you know, IDEs, you know, uh, of, of, uh, preferred IDEs came up and, uh, like me and another guy, like, I mean, we didn't get into like an argument, but we, we did get into like a discussion about like why he was adamantly opposed to WebStorm, And his reason was because in his large scale projects, he was like, it just broke down. Like it would be unusable when WebStorm would go through its indexing process and whatnot. And like, he was like, yeah, you could go into the settings and there was like a thousand different tweaks that you could make to be like, Hey, I'm not going to ever have this type of file. So don't even try to look for that type of thing or whatever. And, and he was like, it just got to be too, too much maintenance to try to like maintain 
um, uh, WebStorm in order to use it all because of how gigantic his, his project was. And, and because my projects weren't at the same scale, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like WebStorm is amazing for web development. What are you talking about? And he, he just like, he couldn't, he couldn't get on the same level with me. Like he couldn't comprehend how awesome it was because his project was too large. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it. We've definitely all yeah. been a part of them. <laughs> yep. So, um, the, the next part improved fault isolation. And this one's actually a really awesome pro is we've seen it before. If, if there's one piece of code in an API that just operates like garbage, it's slow, it's inefficient, whatever eats up a ton of memory, your entire API goes down, right? In this case, the only thing that's impacted by that is that one microservice, right? Uh, you could have five other versions of it running or five other instances of it running. It's only that one and it doesn't impact anything else, right? It's just that one thing. Um, well, have you ever seen like system designs where it's like, um, Hey, we know that there's like a bug in this thing. Like eventually it'll restart every three hours, but yeah. who cares? We're yeah. just going to spin up a thousand of them and we yeah. don't, <laughs> whatever. It'll be fine. And that's kind of what you're at here, right? So if something does go wrong, uh, whatever, it's, it's only impacting that one thing and it doesn't have any state that it cares about. So fine, whatever. Um, here's another one. This one, yeah, whatever. Applications start and run faster when they're smaller. Sure, that's true. Um, I, I've gotten to the point where I think hardware is fast enough to where I don't really care about that stuff anymore. But, you know, maybe, maybe there are other situations. Well, you've been working on Spring lately. <laughs> <laughs> the true. Spring startup is, whew, even if it's like, hello world. Whew. Yeah. Well, I, coming at this from like a Kubernetes point of view, like this super matters how fast your application can spin up. Oh, because yeah. in the case that, the uh the coordinator decides to move it to another node pool or to another node or whatever like it 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 wants to be able to like shut something down quickly and then spin it back up quickly so that there's you know uh or actually i guess it would like spin up the other one before it shut down the other one but whatever it, you know the point being is that like it it wants to be able to do those things really quick in tor- in order to um not have downtime you know, yeah, cause that's the goal point. in a Kubernetes environment. Yeah. Good point. Um, and so the other one that we already called out earlier is it also allows you to be more flexible with the, with the tech stacks, right? You can totally change out pieces as, as you see fit because they're smaller and easier to do that with. Or experiment with new technologies. You've heard a lot of great things about rust. Let's, let's check out this rust thing. What's this rust right. thing about? Does it bias anything? All right. Yeah. Totally. Now, don't tell your boss that this is what you want microservices for. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is what this is what we all actually want it for, but this is not how you sell it. Right. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for full visibility into all your serverless functions. Troubleshoot performance issues faster by seamlessly navigating between logs, Lambda metrics, and distributed request traces all within one unified platform. Datadog provides real-time screen boards and service mappings so you can get complete observability in your service environments. And uh, I'm looking at what they have to offer for microservices right now. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's just literally beautiful. Like, I just want to cry looking at it. It's such a hard problem and they make it so easy by tying all this stuff together. Uh, giving you things like uh, distributed tracing and uh, mapping, monitoring, 
uh, the visualization and um, like tracing and correlation across the uh, different logs sources across different services to figure out like what went wrong. It's so important to, to and it makes things so much easier. You really need to have this stuff. And it's great to see what they've got there for microservices. And they take that same level of like quality and detail and just attention to your needs, uh, customer, no matter how you're using the product. It's just, well, you, gotta, you just got to go Google Datadog microservices. It, it, it's, it's, he's not wrong. I'm telling you, like, we have talked and gushed about Datadog before. Like, their blog is incredible with how much stuff they have out there. And, and, you know, they really are a thought leader in this. So, of course, they have an amazing article, uh, for example, on full stack microservice monitoring. Right. And to Jay Z's point about the, the visualizations that they have in some of their dashboards, like it's like you ever seen those, uh, those types of relationship graphs where, uh, you know, you see a bunch of things on the, uh, you know, a bunch of nodes all connected and, and you're like, Oh, well, that's cool. It kind of looks like, you know, stuff coming in from one country going across another country or whatever. But now imagine if you had that type of visualization but for your microservice architecture. And then you're like, Oh, let me just drill into one of those things and see what it's doing. Like this, this visualization that you're showing here is just amazing. And these, these are the types of, uh, you know, if you, I'll include a link to this in the show notes. If you go here and you look at these types of visualizations, these are the amazing types of functionality that you're going to get with Datadog to, you know, when we talk about how troubleshooting your performance issues faster, yeah, you know why? Because you could easily visualize where the source of the problem is without having to like go and manually read those logs yourself. Instead, you're like, oh, this little blip right here was red. Let me click on it, see why, right? And then and then see some. So like, you owe it to yourself to uh, go check out Datadog. I'll I'll have some links in the show notes for you to make it easy for you uh, to point you in some directions, but. Uh, go check it out. Start monitoring today. You can get a free 14 day trial and receive a free Datadog t-shirt after creating one dashboard. Yeah. So again, go check out datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to learn more about how Datadog can help you optimize your serverless environment. Okay. Well, it is that time of the episode where, um, you know, I, I, I was going to do the beg here, but since uh, I saved the internet last time and it didn't seem to matter, maybe I should let one of our our late night radio DJs uh, do it. But you know, hey, I tell you what, internet, I'm going to do you a favor. I'll I'll go ahead and ask for the review this time, and it. But but I'll, with a threat that if I don't get any reviews this time, I swear I'm going to unleash them. What is one of them are <laughs> come out and you're going to be upset that you had to like hear Alan or Joe do their uh, late night DJ voice uh, asking for a review, but instead you're going to hear it from me. So if you haven't already left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. If you did leave us one, uh, it really does mean a lot to us. Every one of them that we read puts a smile on our face and uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, we get off, we ask, we get asked often uh, like, Hey, you know you know, if you guys had a Patreon or some way that I could like donate, I'd love to be able to, you know, donate or buy you a cup of coffee or whatever. And you know what? Leaving us a review is your way that you can do that for us. Um, it, it takes no, um, money out of your pocket. It just takes a, a few moments of your time and we really do appreciate it. 
And so with that, uh, we head into my favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Oh, wait. No, it's not. I'm sorry. I was like, wait a second. Yeah. I got <laughs> I, I got sidetracked there. I don't even know why I said that. Do you ever just say stuff and you're like, that was so random. Like the words that I saw in my head were not the words that came out of my mouth. Data-driven design. <laughs> that. Wait, domain-driven? <laughs> right. Data-driven. Right. Yes. It's one of those two. Right. Uh, we'll never know. There's no way we could ever know. We can't possibly rewind and know that I said data-driven when right. I thought I said data-domain-driven. Or no, wait. I did say data-domain-driven, and I thought I said data-driven. Oh, you know what? I've already confused myself. We've just seen the breakdown of Michael Outlaw Live. Yes, it's happening <laughs> in real time. <laughs> My, my my Michael services are failing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay. Well, it's time for survey says. All right. So I'm actually really excited about this survey. So a few episodes back, we asked the all important question that the internet needs an answer to. How do you put your shoes on? Sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Just in case I decide I only want socks. Or... Sock shoe, sock shoe. You can't have a foot only partially dressed or shoe sock, shoe sock, or wait a minute, that ain't work. Uh, socks. You don't wear socks with boat shoes or shoes. It's a flip flop life for me. So, uh, what episode is this? 165. So Alan, according to, uh, to tech has trademarked a uh, pattern. You are first with uh you know to give an answer. So what do you think is the the most popular answer and a percentage? All right, so I'm just going to assume that the flip-flops are not going to be the vast majority only because we have a lot of northern people that listen to the podcast and they would get frostbite in their toes. Nobody wants that. So I'm going to go with the only valid answer here if mm-hmm. it's not flip-flops and that is sock sock shoe shoe because that that makes sense um and I'm go with 35 percent on that one so i've been thinking about this one a lot uh, <laughs> ever since i brought it up i tried to kind of pay attention to what i do and i found that i'm completely inconsistent like i just thought obviously it's sock sock shoe shoe and then I caught myself doing sock shoe, sock shoe. Uh, so I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that sock, sock shoe, shoe just makes sense. Um, in case you only want to do socks, but, um, I, I don't know. There's something nice about doing it one at a time too, you know? <laughs> so it's better to do one thing completely than two things, you know, halfway, right? No, man. So <laughs> that's, so that's my answer. You got to give percentage. Eleven. Eleven. <laughs> okay. So 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 Joe goes with sock sock shoe shoe, eleven percent. And and no. Alan, you said sock sock shoe shoe, and I forgot your percentage though. Thirty five. But 35. you know what's great about this is all right. We're doing prices right rules right. So. I would love to just choose 11, you know, because that 10% buffer underneath it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Right? Like, let's just, let's hit somewhere between 11 and 1%. 35 for the yeah. win. <laughs> so both of you go sock, sock, shoe, shoe, 
Alan, 35%. Joe, 11%. I guess. Well, I'm happy to report that we have a solid winner. Yes. It's interesting how confident you are right now, Alan. It can't be between 11 and 35. (laughs) No, it it was you, Alan. Okay. (laughs) 71%. Wow. Sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Now, because Alan, you were saying that that was the only one that made sense was sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Totally. And, and Joe, uh, did I just lose Joe or is he just nope. napping? <laughs> no. I think, I, I, uh, think oh, I dig. That's a great right. shot of him napping. Go ahead. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so, uh, Joe, you said you go back and forth. Sometimes you're sock, sock, shoe, shoe. And sometimes you're sock, shoe, sock, shoe. Yeah. I mean, I do all of those. Except for with shoes, I don't doesn't make any shoes. sense, man. So I, I'm, I would, I'm really kind of shocked at the where this landed because, like, so flip flop, the flip flop choice was the number two answer. So okay. and that one had like twenty one percent of the vote. So there, right away, like that's the you know we're over ninety two percent at that point, right? Yeah. This all came about because I am sock shoe. Sock shoe. <laughs> All right. Because like it, I, I focus on one foot at a time and that's what, that's the foot I put on. Right. That make no sense. It, but it does, it especially does like, especially when I go mountain biking, for example, because like, for example, when, when I get to the trail and, and you know, I'll, I'll go to the trail wearing flip flops and then sit down and put my shoes and socks on, you know, at my car, but I don't want, to get like dirt and everything on my, on my feet. And once you put a sock on, you can't wear a flip flop, right? So put your sock on, then you put your, your cycling shoe on and then you do the other foot, right? So that you're putting a foot into, you know, a clean foot into a sock. So, I mean, like that's just one example where it makes sense. But like just in my general, like this all came about, because my wife saw me putting on my shoes one day and she's, she had dawned on her. She's like, wait a minute. What psychopath? <laughs> what are you doing? Put yep. the other sock on. And I'm like, I what? mean, do you have them both in your hand? Like, why would you put down one of your socks and then no. grab a oh, shoe? Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a wait, minute. You don't, you don't tuck your socks together and put them in your drawer. No, but, but, but what you just said is misspoken. You're not holding both socks at the same time you're putting one on. You you set one down, you put one sock on, and then you pick up th- then you can pick up the other sock. But that's completing the task, sir. <laughs> you can't you So can't is do completing that. the task of the foot. No, like, no. I've no, already no. got this foot up in the air to put this to put the sock on. Why not just grab the shoe and put the shoe on while it's in the air? Yeah, I bet I bet there's some psychological study out there that says you are a little bit insane for that. I'm te- no, probably- I'm telling you the internet is wrong. <laughs> no, you guys I'm, are wrong, I'm and the internet is wrong. It is the proper order is sock shoe sock shoe done. He's right. He's right. <laughs> so I realized the source of my inconsistency is because I usually keep my shoes outside, like in the garage. So I put my socks on, go downstairs, go outside, shoe shoe. So sock sock shoe shoe. The times when I uh, put my shoes on inside, like if it's dress shoes or, you know, it's like if I'm, you know, put like putting on shoes inside for some reason, like I'm going to vacuum or something, I put sneakers on. 
I do sock, shoe, sock, shoe because I don't want to get uh, dog hair on the bottom of my socks. So uh, that's that's why I'm inconsistent. And you just made me realize that it wasn't inconsistent. It's just that I did sometimes one way, sometimes the other. Man. All right. I'm glad that most people are saying and, and voted that way. No, I think Solid if anything, we've learned over, over you know, the recent years of this podcast with these polls, like the majority of people are insane. It's <laughs> sock, shoe, sock, shoe. And this is just yet another data point to confirm that. Like, I, I feel like we should crazy. follow this up at some point in the future and be like, okay, now that everybody heard the other episode, we need more people to vote and tell us if 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 this is crazy. That's pretty funny, though. That's good. I mean, you know, whatever. Just saying, uh, I'm the sane one here. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Well, how about this? How about if I ask you this instead? How was the snow globe feeling after the storm? Pretty shaken up. Pretty shaken up. That's a little good. shaken. Yep. Yep. That's good. Fine then, Mr. Jozak. You think you're so <laughs> smart? Why do birds fly south for the winter? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's too far to walk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so for your next uh, survey, enjoyment. Um, this one isn't going to be as controversial. I mean, I think the sock, sock, shoe, shoe, or sock, shoe, sock, shoe question will be forever. Like the most controversial question we've ever asked as a survey. But, uh, yeah, don't, I see you questioning. Did we do times and spaces? I think we might've at some point. This one is way, way more controversial. Like this, this was, this is definitely the holy war of the internet. All right. versus spaces is just among software developers or whatever, but like, you know, you might have a point. Yeah. yeah. This, this one affects the whole internet. So, um, for this episode survey, we ask for your next laptop, are you leaning towards something with windows 11? It'll be fine. Or something with Apple silicone. It'll probably be fine. <laughs> <clears throat> or something running some Linux distribution app install. Fine. Or probably a Chromebook. It's good enough. Or is it laptop? I'll stick with my desktop. I don't go anywhere anyways. <laughs> Nowadays, truer than ever. <laughs> uh, I'm curious with this one. I don't think we've done one like that in a while. I don't think so. But and I heard you like you know passing judgment on the Chromebook. It's good enough. It, you know, it depends uh, on what you're doing. Yeah. We've actually had you know people who have written in in the past that like you know, used a Chromebook to get all through their CS degree and, you know, used online services for everything. Well, Google employees do the virtual desktop stuff too. I don't know about all of them, but, you know, and it's common. So it's probably fine. That's because they own the cloud compute, right? Like they can afford to do that. They spend a million dollars on VMs that are all funny money internally. So, yeah, whatever. All right. So, so we finished up with the pros of the microservice and, and there were some good ones, right? Like I think we all thought that those were all pretty good. All right. So here's the downsides. Let's, let's, let's hit the cons. All right. So this one cannot be overstated. There is additional complexity of a distributed system. Man, isn't there? 
Oh, yeah, for real. It's miserable. Like, I hope you like looking at logs in like some sort of aggregation tool. And then like all the authentication to go across all of them. Like if you have to do any kind of certificate management among them. Wait, yeah. I, I feel like Jay-Z had more to say there. Like oh. he was quick and hot to jump off. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, please. it's such a pain. You should you should never do a distributed system. Never, unless you have to. <laughs> and in which case, well, we'll make the best of it. But yeah, I mean, the, the debugging is terrible. It's so hard to see, like setting debuggers and stuff, like having multiple editors open and stuff. Like that's stuff that, that like nobody wants to do. Like maybe it looks cool and like, the uh, you know, the dashboards, like the dog dashboards are amazing. But if you could just do it all in a single pane of glass and a single file, like you, ever, you would, everyone would, right? It's uh, it's it's huge. Hey, and what you said about debugging is no small thing. Like I don't remember if I have it in the show notes here or if it was just something I read on one of the several pages I was on. A lot of IDEs are built for more monolithic type approaches, and I'd never even thought about it. But if you ever try and debug a distributed system, you'll find that to be true real quick. Like, it's just not easy at all. There's yeah. just not good tooling for it. It's like you said, it's, it's crawling through logs, and that's not fun. So, it's like Visual Studio by default, it doesn't, like, you start a project, it'll stop whatever other one you got. You have to go turn a setting on. And even then, like, it, like uh, in IntelliJ, too, like, it kind of, like, it wants one to be prominent. Like this is right. the one that you're in right now. You know, everything is like, it's a drop down. So it's all built around having one thing selected at a time. So you can do it, but it's just, yeah, it's just awkward. Yeah. They're not built around it. Um, so another one, you have additional cost overhead of services, network traffic, all that good stuff. Uh, additional storage. You, you could be duplicating storage for that data. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, Multi-system transactions are really hard. Uh, I don't know if that if we get into it in this episode or not, but that is super true. What what Outlaw brought up earlier about uh, you have a four-step order process in in a database. You have a transaction you wrap around those things. If something fails on step three, then you just roll back, right? Like it's done. In a distributed system where they all have separate data storage, uh, you have to manage that on your own. Right? Yeah. That's that's not easy. Um. Uh, somebody's got something here on a Stack oh, Overflow thing. Yeah. So, so check out this. Uh, click this article, and I think this is a diagram that uh, we can actually describe. If you scroll down into, you'll know when you see it. <laughs> I just love the, the title of this article: "The Macro Problem with Microservices." Yeah, the duct tape. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, does someone want to describe this picture? Uh, I see your uh, your uh, celery's in there, Alan. Oh man, it really is. Yeah. So I mean, I haven't read this article, but it's really it's kind of funny. They have they have these pages that are duct taped together with technologies, right? So you got duct tape pa- like holding a page together with Redis, and then you've got duct tape holding together uh, MySQL with another one, and and then there's like a barbed wire chain. No, it's from- broken chains. Broken chains? Oh, it's yeah. Broken yeah. chains. It, it's chains with a bunch of weak links that are already broken. <laughs> a rabbit of cues, a frayed thread that's that's being linked to from them. Like, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So uh, I do have something funny to say about this article, though. Or I don't know if it's funny or not. So this is the Stack Overflow blog, right? So let's this go check out recent. this author. 
Yeah, this is so November 2020. So way before the acquisition, the acquisition by their you know parent new parent company happened a couple days ago. It finalized. This uh, happened months ago. Rylan Goldstein is the author of this blog post, right? And they're the head of product at Temporal. Who's Temporal? Well, they're a microservice company. <laughs> They've got a <laughs> product around microservice, but he doesn't work for Stack Overflow. As far as I can tell, he never works for Stack Overflow. Uh, they work at Temporal. So I thought, well, does Stack Overflow blog just have like guests post? But you you won't find the word guests anywhere on this blog post. Interesting. Yeah. And it, like if you scroll down, like about halfway through, it starts talking about Temporal's product. So this is not like someone who used to work at Stack Overflow and then, you know, wrote this article and then moved on and updated their bio or anything. Like half this, like about halfway down the page, it starts talking about Temporal and their services and they it literally says, so now comes the part where we pitch you on our solution. Right. But it doesn't say anywhere on here, promoted blog post. Huh. Yeah. You would have just assumed that it was something that Stack Overflow people would have said something about. Yeah. And if you huh. go to the author's page on Stack Overflow, uh, it's just stackoverflow.blog slash authors. Uh, everyone, I believe, on this author's page uh, actually works at Stack Overflow. And this person is not shown there. But if you go click on their title in the article, they've written several articles on Stack Overflow. Oh, that's pretty. So that's you know that's the side note. But I kind of like it was funny because I kept seeing, I kept noticing that every blog article that was pro microservices was written by a company that sold something in the microservices space, which is you know that's not new, that's not unique. It's just kind of funny that there's this big like microservices industrial complex. It's like churning out these articles about like, you know, what's good about it and why you should do it when you should consider it. And then you're going to see a bunch of uh, like hater articles that are like my company start do microservices. They're the worst. And we quit. And there's all these tiniest companies that have like 10 employees, you know, and they're like microservices suck. And so it's just funny that there's this big gap between there's companies that are like trying to sell to you. And there's like these small companies who are just probably inappropriate in the first place and they hate it. So it's kind of funny, but it, yeah, it kind of gave me, um, I would say like an icky feeling to kind of think like Stack Overflow. When you go to the blog, you kind of like assume that this is Stack Overflow. And by having the opinion on there, it kind of like makes you think like Stack Overflow is kind of behind this. And I always thought of Stack Overflow as being a shining example of like a monolith. Right. So the whole thing was weird in the first place. And so it was just kind of weird to be like, this looks a lot like a promoted post or guest post. And neither one seems to be the case here. Like I cannot find any sign of that on the blog page. So we'll have a link there. I don't know. I'm, you know, that's definitely a side note, but it was just kind of like, I, I don't like thinking that I'm reading a, a promotional post and it's not called out. Yeah. So you got to be careful that. with that stuff. Yeah. So the next con of this is implementing the inner service communication and handling of failures. That's, that's a, a really big one. Uh, it's not simple. I've seen some really complex setups. Uh, implementing multi-service requests is more complex. Not only more complex, but you may be interfacing with multiple developer teams as well. Which yes. That has some overhead, right? Communication yep. is hard. It, it really is, And it man. doesn't scale at no. all. My and you know, funny, it's like, if you're like, well, this team should fix it, but they don't have time. We could get this team to fix it, and that's really not the appropriate place to do it, but they've got the bandwidth to do it now. Or maybe I should band it over and write a ticket. Blah, blah. <laughs> Just like having that, like, well, that sounds like a meeting, right? And we'll have a couple emails. We've got to make sure to document it. So-and-so is out on vacation. We'll talk about it. Maybe we'll we'll just bump this whole thing into next sprint. Like, that's how this crap happens. Yep. <laughs> right? Totally. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we've hit his button tonight. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Last I, I episode, much prefer Michael services. Last episode, Alan was twitching, but this one it's Jay Z is definitely needs his medication. That's awesome. <laughs> um, testing interactions between services is more complex. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Like you're basically going to have to be doing integration type testing at that point. Yep. Um, yeah, we already said this. IDEs don't make distributed application development easier. It, it, it is, it's not even close. Um, deployments are more complex. So even though you can independently deploy these things, managing multiple services and dependencies and all that stuff, it is actually harder, right? Like it, it, it's not just cake. Well, I mean, to be clear here, what we're talking about is that you, it might be require a requirement that you have multiple versions of your service deployed. And that's yes. why the deployments are more complex because yeah. you might that's, have that's to support, huge. you know, a V1, a V2, a V3 of whatever your thing is. And like, you know, think about it from the data layer, like you're abstracting that database layer, but you might still need to uh, have a way to have that, you know, as you want to like add or remove columns or whatever, you still need to support V1. And so now you got to like deal with that in addition to upgrades that you're making. Well, and, and this also does, you know, taking that a step further is you have to start thinking about, you know, you you've seen in code where things are deprecated, Right. Well, if you're going to say that you're going to deprecate in your service, I mean, you've seen it before. You can send out a thousand notifications and be like, yo, we're not kidding. You know, on on September 1st, these things will no longer exist. And inevitably, when you deploy your thing out on September 1st with those deprecated pieces gone, you're going to start getting emails. Like, yo, why did this stop working? I, I can promise you, like, here's an example. This one, uh, I hope this doesn't like bring back any, uh, PTSD for you guys, oh, no. but I can promise you come December of this given year, then I'll, you know, whatever given year it is, this search service will go away. Oh yeah. And, and you can get that notification for a year in advance. And you can keep ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it until it's like two weeks before. And you're like, I think they might be serious. Oh, they really did mean that. <laughs> Oops. Oh, yeah. I guess technically in that case, it was uh, after it actually did get shut down. Then they're like, oh, they were serious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They weren't kidding. Um, so, yeah, deploying is more complex. Oh, Increased infrastructure requirements, right? Like if you have a monolith, you can set up a few servers and you're good. Um, if you're doing microservices, it's probably a little bit more complex than that, right? Like whether you're running on VMs or you're doing Kubernetes or whatever, you have to have CPU, memory requirements, all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, that that gets a little bit more complex. <laughs> and it looks like we have distributed debugging in here again. Is, is, is it called? <laughs> yeah. It's real hard. Real hard. <laughs> you know what I think that is? I think that was like a race condition. Like uh, it was supposed to come in the first, but because it didn't, uh, because exactly. it's timing, like it ends up coming in here as a duplicate. So yeah, sorry. We'll have to debug that, figure out what happened. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's not a real problem in prod, right? Like let's have, a, we should have a meeting about that. <laughs> yeah. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah. It's just a, just a dev thing. Let's just ignore it. Right. Hey, what's, yeah, what's, this, what's this Twitter thing we got here? Yeah, so I thought this was really funny. So uh, I got this from, jeez, uh, one of the articles I read. But uh, it's a tweet from Simon Brown, who uh, has written a book on uh, on software architecture at some point. 
Um, and we'll have a link here in the show notes. And he says, I'll keep saying this in this tweet. Um, if people can't build monoliths properly, microservices won't help. <laughs> I think that is the perfect thing. Like microservices are not going to fix your crappy application, right? If your monolith has problems, if you've got problems with, uh, you know, abstractions and like configuration and deployments for a monolith, well, I got bad news for you. <laughs> this is not going to make your life easier. So true. So true. If you, and by that, Kind of what, what he's getting at is if you've got spaghetti code and tight coupling all throughout your application and all that, that bad stuff to where, I mean, we talked about it in clean architecture and clean code and all those other places. If you can't make a change to a class because it just has cascading effects all the way through your application, uh, you're probably in for a world of hurt if you think that you're going to be able to turn this into a microservice type thing. So and yeah, the first time I heard of uh, microservices, like it wasn't even uh, it wasn't a t- t- called microservices to me, but it was working at Amazon. So I was talking about having like okay that you're going to have a tax service, you're going to have a shipping service, you're going to have all these different services, you're going to have a cart service, and the deal was like it would go off and call these. Things. I remember thinking it was crazy, but it was because they were dealing with that kind of scalability, and they had teams that made a really good tax service, and there was teams that had a really good shipping service, and there's you know these things, and that makes sense to have like a team working on shipping or a team working on tax at Amazon. And it's fantastic that they're not all kind of blocking each other. They've got independent deploys. Like all this stuff makes so much sense for Amazon. It doesn't make sense for a five person company though. Right. Um, all right. So the next thing here is we've talked about some of the amazing pros and we've talked about some of the really dark, deep cons. Uh, how do you know, when you should be choosing the microservice architecture. And this also came from a, a little bit on the microservices.io site. And it's a hard problem to even answer this question because it, it, like, like Joe said earlier, if you're a small startup, like, like he said, most of the blog articles out there, we did microservices and they were terrible. We, we trashed them. If you're a small startup, your primary goal should be to start making money. Right. And to start making money, you need to get your product out there and working and selling and, and all that kind of stuff. If you try to go the microservice route, it will slow you down. It is way more complicated than standing up an interior application. Period. There's, there's no question. There's way more infrastructure that has to be in. There's more, there's more tech stacks. There's more everything is harder. But wait, Alan, tell me more about this interior application. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we all know this one, right? Like that's, that's your, you have your front end, you have your middle tier and you have your data storage, right? Like that's kind of the simple one that's been around forever that I'd say a lot of people are probably most familiar with. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we defined it in case. Good call. Um, okay. But here's the, here's the downside <clears throat> of not choosing to go the microservice route. And this is totally true too. So this is a catch 22, right? Let's say that you do create a product that becomes very popular and you start hitting scaling problems. It can actually be really difficult to split that thing apart. Um, if, if you didn't design it in a way like saying something like uh, domain driven design or, or something along those lines, trying to figure out how to split the thing up and turn it into a scalable implementation may be really hard. You know, if, if everything writes to the same database and, and your database is your bottleneck, 
you got to figure that out. Um, if your API is set up and it's heavily based on state, um, you got to figure that out. Like you can't just start running 12 of them. So it, it's, it becomes a really difficult thing. So, so does that mean you should do it at the beginning? Probably not, but know that if you do end up hitting that tipping point, like it, it's going to take some work to do it. And maybe that's, it, that's fine. If you're making money, then, then you bite that bullet when it comes. Yeah. Like an example might be, Hey, you know, one, one web server does just fine for your, your small store. Right. And then eventually you're like, you know what? Uh, we're doing pretty good. I need uh, more web servers for my store. And, uh, you know, I don't think I have state. Oh, wait, no, I do have some state information uh, related to shopping carts. and everything. Okay. So I do have some state. Oh gosh, how am I going to do that? Maybe it'd be good enough to just do like a sticky session. So, you know, customer a comes in and they always get server three and uh, customer B comes in and they always get server one. And, you know, that'd be good enough. But then over time, maybe, uh, you know, your, your company's really, really successful. And then it's like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I just need to move, uh, you know, some of this into a caching layer that is independent of my app server. And now the app server can scale independent of that, you know, and I don't have to worry about sticky sessions and things like that. Right. Like, you know, there are, you evolve into these architectures over time. You don't start with them. Like the old expression of like Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, kind of thing is, is, you know, still applicable here. Yeah. And when we went over domain or designing domain, uh, domain driven design, designing data intensive applications, that's where the data came in. Like, they even called out Twitter, right? Several times in that book, Twitter didn't start off as a hyperscalable company, right? Like they grew into it over time because as the need and the user base and all that stuff was there, then it made sense. So, Oh, I mean, if you remember like the fail whale, like it yeah. was quite, like, <laughs> even once they sure. were popular, they still weren't uh, scaling, you know, like, like they might've wanted to. Yeah. So, this is where I, I thought this was a really good portion of it. So they start talking about, all right, so let's say that you've hit that point. You, you're not trying to build Roman a day. So you start out, you do things sort of a way that's easier for developers to get their heads around and start getting a product out there. And now you need to scale. How do you decompose this application that you've built into microservices? Like what are some good keys on how to do this? And I thought these were good. Um, one of them was do so by the business capability. I think Joe Zach, you brought this up earlier, right? Like you kind of do it around what your company functions are. So they had some examples. Uh, You have product catalog management, inventory management, order management, delivery management, right? Like those are all good candidates for setting up as a microservice, breaking those out. Um. then they go into, well, how do you know the right way to break down the business things? And by the way, you do this with code all the time, right? Like I'm sure all of us look at our code and they're like, should I make this another class? Should wait, should this be another class? Should this be another method in this class? Like, you know, this is, this is not easy stuff. You know, remember when we worked in e-commerce stuff or large e-commerce company, the, the front end and the back end kind of systems were like totally separate. So it was amazing because shipping could be down. Right. Oh my gosh, 
all day. Horrible, awful. Oh my gosh. The orders kept coming in and vice right. versa. The, you know, website, sometimes you do schedule maintenance or something go down for a little bit. Things are still shipping. You know, you've got people coming in hourly, whatever. You know, it's not like you'd have the warehouse worker sitting around all day and then they go home at night and oh, now you're back up. Now you're not shipping, you know, so it, it was really great to kind of have that there. And I don't, I doubt we would have called them microservices even if, you know, had the term been around back then, but, uh, it had a lot of the, the advantages of being able to kind of scale uh, and what I, but it was split up by business capability there. So it was totally separated and we had an ETL process for getting things in between and it, and it totally functioned like that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I don't know that I want to be careful though. Cause like just because you have different applications for different you know business <clears throat> departments within your business, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't equate to microservice though, right? Right. They so were just separate systems. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Different totally databases, different. different systems, but they definitely were not microservices. Um, they wouldn't have scaled, right? Like I, I think that's the well, big differentiator that of what like what he said is, you know, one system could go down and the other one still be running, but they were still potentially using the same database. Um, you know, like one system was using one database. So if something went wrong in that database, it didn't matter about the services or anything else. The whole thing was down, right? Well, what I'm talking about down the ERP was uh, Oracle. And front end was SQL Server, so they were totally disconnected. And there was like a queue between them, right? So in that case, like the databases were, so the applications and like they were totally disconnected. And the only thing that connected them was a queue, yep, or a series of queues. But they weren't scalable, right? Like we we couldn't spin up a, a thousand uh, order processors or anything. Like it, you right. still had you still had yeah, some of those point. issues. Um, yeah. So old school. It, yeah. Um. What else we have? Oh, so an. Uh, like how do you break down the business capability? So it could be organizational structure, right? Like he, he was talking about departments earlier, uh, customer service, shipping, whatever. Uh, it could be the domain model, like what we covered in domain driven design, you know, um, what are some good bounded contexts to set up? Um, I know we talked about aggregate roots and things like that back in the day, right? Like <clears throat> these, these units of work that kind of needed to happen. Um, uh, which the next bullet point is, which leads to decomposing by domain-driven design. So this was interesting. I don't know if you guys have seen this or heard this before, but I thought this was really good. You can decompose by verb. So like an action, order, ship, um, pay, something like that, right? Or decompose by the noun. So you have an account service or an order service, like the things that are parts of your system. I, I kind of like that. Um, go ahead. Well, I mean, and we definitely had this kind of conversations as it relates to rest. So okay. now I'm, I'm trying to think like how that would work. Like if you decompose this microservice as ship, right. You know, like, it, well, it would be a ship, a service for shipping, I guess is what they're saying. You would create a shipping service because that's your verb, right? Um, if there's an ordering service where somebody places an order, that would be the service. So it, it's pretty interesting. I'd never thought about it in that way, but it, I guess it would be, it'd be a good way to start looking at your system and saying, what are the actions that either the system takes or that users take when they're interacting with it? And then go from there. I think that might be a good way for you to sort of like visually parse and break apart the features. I, I think the part that, that struggled, like it dawned on me, like I'm getting, I was getting caught up on the semantics of it, 
because I was thinking of like shipping service as like, well, the shipping department is the noun, right? Just like the billing service here is the noun, right? And and that's why it was just purely a semantic thing that was kind of like, uh, you know, hanging me up. Yep. And then here's another thing they say, and this is sort of a parallel to how we design software is follow the single responsibility principle. So that service should be responsible for one and only one thing, right? If, if you have a, a billing service, it shouldn't be doing anything with a customer. It, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing anything with the order. It's only for, you know, taking payments or doing refunds or something like that. Right. So get yeah, that, that money. Oh, that's, that's right. So, <laughs> so I think Jay Z, you had some, some uh, interesting things in here. Oh yeah. I just had some fun questions. And uh, uh, like part of this is kind of like, um, if you ever listen to software engineering daily, like <laughs> the uh, host of that show, he's definitely kind of, um, See, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of skeptical of like microservice, uh, you know, industrial complex. I think I actually stole that phrase from him. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so I, I think it's a good thing to, to kind of ask is like, is microservices a marketing term? Is this, uh, what I'm kind of getting at here is, is, is this, you know, real? <laughs> Help me out here. What's the question I'm trying to ask is basically like, is this a solution for problems that, people have or is this you know a demographic or a market that companies are trying to create i think it's legit for for businesses that need it because of things like scale and and maybe complexity too right yeah and so it seems like, yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's what I would agree with too. Cause like, uh, I went and looked at like who uses microservices and Netflix, Uber, Amazon, they are a different kind of class of companies that, and they need that stuff. Like we mentioned, you know, with shipping and whatnot, it like makes sense that maybe they have 250 developers that all they do is work on shipping software that figures out the best prices and, and how to kind of coordinate that. And, you know, Netflix too, like, Maybe they've got, you know, teams of people that just work on recommendations and teams of people that just work on uh, streaming and teams of people that just work on authentication. You know, who knows? It makes sense for them to organize like that. Um, I don't know that it makes sense to go smaller, but maybe. And so maybe those companies that are kind of targeting them are, you know, trying to bring other companies up. And the way you do that is you go after kind of smaller developers and you hope to raise them up. And, uh, you know, I mentioned like the articles I saw, like for who has abandoned microservices or if you just like, search for like microservices fat or anything like that. Uh, I always like to try to look at the negative articles for stuff. Like you'll see a lot of it's just like people who had smaller teams or tried to share databases or they tried to uh, basically have a distributed monolith and they weren't getting what they got out of it. And so it's just scary to see how many projects for smaller teams have turned out really badly. Like so badly that they wrote articles about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I was going to add that, you know, to the question about like, are they, are microservices a conspiracy that, um, you know, kind of echoing what you guys said, like it is a necessity, but I think that part of this in recent years, like why it's become a thing is that if we were to rewind through our history, right? Like, I mean, computer science as a whole is like an evolving thing that we're constantly studying new patterns, like trying to apply things and seeing what works, what doesn't. And, you know, if you were to rewind like, you know, 40 years, then the way computers were used is drastically different. So like 
because of their limited capabilities and whatnot, they were already like single purpose or for a given department. And, you know, you weren't trying to do everything with it. And then over time, uh, you know, it grew to scale where like we had en- enough compute power that, Hey, we could do all these things on a s- same machine. But then as, as we got to an internet age, then it was like, oh, but the amount of requests that we're getting, like we can't possibly handle it in this way. We got to figure out like a better way to distribute this. And so like we're still evolving this thing that is computer science and learning. And and from that, we're getting new patterns as our needs are growing because of the additional capabilities that we're using. And I mean, I imagine that, you know, if we're, you, you know, let's, so by the time that coding blocks gets into uh, into the episodes, you know, the one thousands based on our release schedule, it'd probably be like 30 years. And, you know, like I imagine that like in 30 years, there, there's going to be patterns and, and uh, things that are like have evolved because of needs that we, we haven't even, we don't even foresee yet. Like it, it's so, so far out there. Like, you know, I mean, imagine, imagine what the, what kind of design patterns might be necessary for like, uh, interstellar communication, you know, like real time interstellar communication, because, you know, we have somebody on Mars and somebody in the international space station and they got stuff they got to get done. Right. You know, like, uh, you know, Mark needs to grow some potatoes on Mars and that's not going to happen if he can't talk to cosmonauts in the international space station. So, um, but you, you you see what I'm where I'm going with this though like so that's where like microservices you know forty years ago maybe or like well I mean I think we established that all the great things in computing happened in the seventies whatever they were doing right then they got it right but you know it wasn't a thing that they talked about then right because they they didn't have those the same kind of needs that we have now yeah absolutely and I, I think a lot of it is just kind of this uh expand and contract and expand and contract and so like new ideas come in people jump to them sometimes they you know pull back on them and but always some things stick so there's some good things that have come about from this kind of like revolution and uh you know we'll keep on keep on evolving and keep on doing that game so Uh, here's a question for you that's not in our notes or anything sure so we talked about how what microservices are if you set up your own microservice implementation right would you consider things like AWS lambdas or Azure Functions or or serverless. Google? Yeah, is serverless a form of a microservice? Hmm. So, to me, the, the microservices that we've talked about so far have been more kind of like application level focused, like where right. they they do some sort of feature oriented or business oriented type thing, and those are so technology focused. They're literally bound by the technology, not by the use cases. And so I kind of feel like, no, but then when I scroll up and look at the definitions, it's like, well, kind (laughs) of. I mean, the reason I say is technically, if you were to create an Azure function or an AWS Lambda or whatever that takes orders, right, or, or does billing, you can set up the function to do very specific things, right? And technically it's kind of stateless. It can work with, you know, a messaging backend. Like, I mean, 
there's all kinds of things that you can do with them that technically they are just little services out there that will scale. And if you design them right and you're using the queuing systems and stuff right in the various clouds, you can almost make an argument that you're getting the benefit of microservices without having to manage the crazy uh, implementation and infrastructure that you'd have to do on your own. Yes. I guess that's the answer is like they can be, if you have them share a database if you have them not be independently deployable because they're all tightly coupled, then no. Right. Okay. But it does seem like a good way if you're doing things right in those, you know, with those services, that's, you're kind of, I mean, I would think kind of, yeah. Like you're, <laughs> you've got a, a good, you're a good step along that path. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. I was kind of thinking like to your question, well, if it was like, if you had a uh, serverless function, hey, am I microservices? But like, I think <laughs> we decided like it wasn't just one thing. Like, you know, I think part of the definition from earlier in the episode was multiple things. Right. They would have to. So I was like, okay, well, I guess maybe if you were like stitched together multiples of these things that could version independently, then it could be. So really the answer is, I don't know. Kind of, maybe, I guess. It depends. Yeah, if you set it up right. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could could still make a, you could have a serverless function that could still be like tightly coupled to something. Oh, totally. I'm sure, you know, like. Absolutely. um, I mean, I think, okay, like case in point, like you you did one for, uh, as part of a talk, if I remember correctly, on um, where you were scraping Libsyn. But you're you know, in that kind of way, you're kind of coupled to whatever Libsyn was doing. So your thing could definitely break, you know, if Libsyn changed their UI. Right? Yeah, that I wouldn't have called that one a microservice. I guess if right. I were to stand up three different Azure functions, like going back to the order thing earlier, one that does billing, one that does the order placement, one does shipping. You could totally set up those functions to where they just shoot off a message in Azure, right? In in the Azure queues. And one of the things that's really nice about functions or any lambdas in, in most of the, the cloud platforms is they can be reactive. You can say, hey, fire this function based off some trigger. And you could totally hook those things up by saying, hey, if you see a message hit the queue that there's a new order, then I need you to go create a shipping label in this function. And I need you to go do a billing thing in this function. So I think that all the building blocks are there. So, so you could set them up to basically be microservices that you don't have to manage all that. Um, in tar- you don't have to set up a rabbit MQ. You don't have to set up the messaging bus and all that kind of stuff, right? Like it's sort of all built for you. You have well, to stitch it together. Uh, well, I want to be clear. I wasn't suggesting that it, that the Libsyn thing was a microservice. I was oh, saying yeah. that it wasn't, even though right. it was yeah, built no. on top of serverless function. Right. right? Yeah, like, totally. So I was trying to point out, like, there are definitely cases where you, you can make something tightly coupled. Yeah, totally. All right. Yeah, one last question is basically, like, how can you tell if you should, if you should pursue microservices? If you're making a lot of money and you can't keep up with the <laughs> demand. Yeah, and I think it's something like if you're shipping over your own fee, if you got a bunch of developers and it's constantly like, well, I can't do this until they do that, and you know, like, wouldn't it be nice if we could just deploy without them? Maybe you know. So if you're starting to have those conversations, and I think you're having these kind of different or self-organized teams that are like getting each other's way, then I think that's like really a good sign that like this might be for you. 
So, yeah, well, stop. All right. Well, uh, you know, we're going to have several links uh, in the resources we like section for this episode. Uh, microservices.io will definitely be in that among uh, many other links. But uh, yeah. And so with that, we now head into the favorite portion of the show, Alan's favorite portion specifically, that I messed up earlier because I thought it was mine. So uh, yeah, I guess, like we said, uh, I'm falling apart and we saw it happen in real time. <laughs> and uh, we appreciate you checking out the show and you can catch us out on, oh, wait, I forgot. Yep. This is part of that breakdown. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you thought I was really going to skip it, right? Uh, yeah. Time. So it's, 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 uh, Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's survey says, <laughs> uh, Oh no, I meant tip of the week or you know, <laughs> right. whatever. So, <laughs> I don't know. Say, like, did somebody put something in my water? Like what's going on here? <laughs> well, I mean, Where you're is? Florida, man. There's always something in your water, right? Like, well, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, speaking really speaking of Florida, man, do you, you might know the answer to this. Did you know that uh, crocodiles could grow up to 15 feet? No, they only have four. Yeah, they usually, most only oh. have four. They can, yes. but most only have four. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Wow, nice. Fine, <laughs> fine. Yeah. fine, be that way. You know they're making a movie about clocks? No, I don't have time. It's about time. Ah, okay. Okay. Very, very well done. <laughs> I, I'd like, to, I'll have seconds of that or something. I, I don't know. I got nothing. Uh, all right. I do have a tip though. Okay. Right. Let's hear it. Yeah. So, uh, Neo Vim, uh, recently, uh, I was talking about wanting to learn Vim while I had a little vacation because, uh, that's what kind of person I am, I guess. And, uh, so, uh, Klaus <laughs> from Slack, uh, Comitin said, Hey, why don't you, why don't you do NeoVim instead? So I went and looked it up and NeoVim is a fork of Vim 7 and uh, Vim 8 is like the what's out right now. So a fork of the last version. And, uh, the main purpose behind it was to address some kind of technical debt and, and kind of design decisions that have grown a little long in the tooth. And, uh, it still acts like, um, Vim. I haven't found anything yet that didn't work. Just, you know, like it's, it's basically a drop and a replacement. But it has made some things better around uh, plugin creation, and specifically, it did some like kind of code cleanup uh, to make it easier to make changes and speed up maintenance in the future. And uh, it now supports RPC for plugins. It's got a better plugin system. The RPC is important because it means you can do things in other languages if you want to, and it'll call out to it, so it doesn't have to just be written kind of in the the older framework that it used to. It's got better support for like async uh, background jobs, stuff like that. So I went ahead and installed it. I haven't made use of any of those new features, but <laughs> it works exactly like Vim. Nice. And remember, Vim is VI improved. So Vim was already kind of like a, a, an outgrowth of the VI. So it's kind of funny. So uh, when you install it, it's NeoVim, N-E-O-V-I-M. But when you run it from command line, it's just NVim. So you can do an app to get or you can do a scoop or a Chaco install or whatever, or brew install. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like one of those things where... If you're using Vim, like, why not uh, try this out? So it's pretty cool. And one thing um, that I read was when I was reading about it, um, some of their kind of experimental features that have been popular have now been incorporated into Vim. So it's kind of been this kind of cool uh, outgrowth where the person maintaining Vim was able to see, like, hey, you know what? They did this thing, and it works. So let me kind of pull some stuff in here. So it's just kind of cool to see the evolution of uh, software that's been around for, like, 
you know, I don't know, before arrow keys were invented. That's how old them is. <laughs> so like 40 years or something. So it's cool to see it's still evolving. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, for my tip of the week, I thought I would share like a recent, uh, find and purchase that made a uh, super inexpensive purchase. But, um, you know, for the Apple watch owners out there, um, like sometimes, sometimes you want to have uh, like another charger for your for your Apple Watch, and specifically for me, what I wanted the reason why I wanted an additional charger was you know re- the the charger that came with it had you know I've been using that forever since I got it, uh, or since I got my first one, and and it was fine, but um, with like a version or two back, I don't remember when Apple introduced this new. Um, uh, functionality into both iOS and watch OS for like sleep tracking. And then it was like, okay, well, when do I ever have time to charge my watch? Cause you know, previously I would charge it while I was sleeping and, and, um, I've gotten into wanting to like understand like, okay, you know, what, what are my sleep patterns? You know, because like sleep is like really critical to your health. Like, it, you know, if you want to think about like, uh, your mental health or just your physical health, like, you know, sleep is ultra, ultra important. And it's definitely something that I have never put a priority on, (laughs) but, but I, but I want to try. Right. And, and so, uh, I wanted to start tracking my sleep to just kind of understand like, what am I doing and everything. And and so I needed to place a charge and I didn't want to just buy another charger, like what Apple has, because then, you know, I don't want to deal with the extra cabling and whatnot. And, you know, so that, that just sounds messy. And like, I'm the type of person that like for my desk, if I need a cable, that's only seven inches long, I will find somebody that sells that cable in that length so that I have like just enough cable, you know, so that I don't have to have like eight feet of cable wound up and, you know, bunched up somewhere because you know, that's like a pet peeve of mine. So this is a charger for the Apple watch. It's got almost 5,300 reviews on Amazon with a 4.3 rating on it. So, you know, we've seen higher reviews, but out of 5,300, I would call that pretty darn good. And what it is, is it's, if you have an Apple watch, think of if you had that little magnetic base and it plugged directly into a USB port and there was no wire at all. And that's what this is. It's a portable uh, Apple watch charger. You could just plug it directly into the USB on your laptop and then just set the watch there. Or in the case that like mine, I have it sitting on top of a, um, I have it plugged into a USB dock. So the it's, uh, so the thing is standing up vertically, but there's a cover for the USB port, uh, port, uh, portion of it. And the cover has a hole on it so that it slides up and over that to act as a shelf for the watch. So that if you do have this thing standing up, it can still support the watch in that vertical um, stand. If I'm making any sense at all, but you know, if I'm not making any sense, then trust me, there will be pictures. You can see uh, what I'm trying to describe and um, you know, on the pictures on Amazon, but this thing is like less than 11 bucks in a variety of colors. And it's fantastic. It's just so convenient and easy to have that charger there with no wiring cluttering up my desk. 
I like it. Although I'm not a, a wearable guy, but I like it. All right. So um, I did a lot of work this week, and I don't think I actually learned anything or accomplished much, unfortunately. <laughs> so I didn't have any good tips myself, but I did go to our Slack channel, which is amazing. So if you're not there, you should definitely contact us. Leave us a DM on Twitter or email us or go to the contact us form on our site. There's a few ways to get a hold of us. Um, and asked to join Slack. So most of these came out of our tips channel in Slack and really some good ones. So again, we said, uh, Jamie at the top of the show for, uh, on GA Progman. Uh, so he shared a link that is a free download, a free download, a free download on Docker security practices. And it's basically a, a little ebook that will tell you some really good things to do to make sure that your Docker images are secure. That's most excellent. Um, so go check that link out. And then also from angry zoot up there, she had one that was pretty interesting. I don't usually install a bunch of Chrome extensions, but there is one here that is really cool. It is basically the daily dev homepage and it's, it's, a, a Chrome extension that allows you as a developer to kind of get news about um, development stuff going on. So instead of you having to go, you know, through hacker news and all that kind of stuff or Reddit or whatever, this is kind of a way to get it on, on your own homepage so that you can see that stuff without having to go all over the place. So it, it almost looks like an aggregator for dev information. It's like so, RSS feeds have been aggregated into an app yep, or, or so, an extension to your browser. Yeah. So really like. nice, right? Yeah. Um, and then another one I that I want to share from Derek Chase that was up there in our Slack as well. And I don't even remember if this was this might have been an episode discussion, but I don't even know how we got on the topic. But it was about like uh, code coverage and that kind of stuff. And and we've talked in the past about setting up something like an independent or not independent. It well, we have independent. talked about independent, yeah, yeah independent code coverage. Yeah, and setting those things up on build servers and that kind of stuff. So anytime people do PRs or whatever, it goes in. And Derek was like, dude, I, I run this thing local, right? So that I can sort of see if things are, are good on my system before I even put in a PR to change. And so what he said was, I just run Sonar Cube and a Docker image. And, and if you go to the link I've got here on Docker Hub, then you can actually see that they've got it set up to where you can mount some volumes, do your sonar cube stuff after your builds and you're good to go. You can get the reports and everything right there. So um, I thought that was a really good tip, right? Like you don't necessarily have to go through all of it on a Jenkins build or, or something like that. You can do it locally and see that stuff. So and um, sonar cube is something we've talked about many times. Um, we, we should do an episode at some point. Episode 61, yeah. episode 69, and episode 72. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, all three great tips. So go check those out. I mean, again, those are from members of our community that are constantly sharing and just giving great information out there. So uh, thank an, you. There's an implicit tip there that you didn't call out, which is like, Alan got all of these from our Slack community. So yeah, I did. I did call that If you're not out. already... Well, well, what I'm saying though is the, the, the tip, wait for it. Oh, <laughs> is that if you aren't already a part of our Slack community, 
community, you should, you should become a part of our Slack community. And then you don't have to wait for Alan to find these and save them on air as a tip of the week. You could just be part of the conversation as it happens. Totally. Um, it, it is really an amazing group of people there. Uh, we, we, you know, are fortunate to, uh, you know, have virtually met them and, uh, yeah, we really do appreciate it. So, um, I guess you could go, you know, find, uh, some, uh, Go to go to codingblocks.net slash slack and then be disappointed when the app tells you that you need a certain domain in order to get access to it. And then you can send us a tweet or an email and say like, hey, what do I got to do to get access to that? And then we'll just reply back with an invite sent. Right. So, um, yeah, there's your easy button for that. Uh, well, speaking of easy button, uh, there's a link on that page now that you can click to send yourself an invite. Ooh. Well, actually, I mean, it just flat out is an invite link. So I like yeah. it. Oh, you so did get it to work. You fixed it. Nice. Yep. Yep. So uh, I think the link, this link should never expire. So it should work. We should no longer have any problems. It's not as slick as the solution we used to have, which is now gone. But yeah, if you go to codingblocks.net, so Slack, there's a big link right at the top. It just says click here to invite yourself and boom. Awesome. Jay-Z right. with that SLA meeting requirement. I like it. All right. Uh, so with that, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you haven't already, uh, subscribe to us, you can find us on whatever your platform of, uh, choices where you find your other fine podcast, but, uh, you know, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher are definitely some of the big ones. Uh, and as I asked earlier, well, I guess I should rephrase this as I threatened you earlier. <laughs> um, if you don't leave us a review at www.codingblocks.net slash review, where you can find some helpful links. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm really, I'm going to unleash Alan or Joe next episode to do the bag. And then, you know, you're going to, you're going to regret it. So like save yourself the trouble and, and give a review while you can before it's too late. Trust him. Oh, geez. <laughs> Coming to you live it's from uh, WJZZ. So, so while you're up there at codyblocks.net, make sure you check out our show notes. If you haven't before, they are copious. Um, we have examples, we have discussions, definitely leave a comment on, on the thing, say hi, whatever. And also if you have any questions or feedback or anything, you can hit us up on Slack or go to the contact us page on codyblocks.net. And whatever you do, do follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks and head over to CodingBlocks.net. You can find all the social links at the top of the page. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>